This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode 39 with guest Deborah Choi. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Suvorova, and welcome to the show. Deborah Choi is the Managing Director and Chief Brand Officer at Bosk, a technology-enabled direct-to-consumer plant business which focuses on selling sustainably grown houseplants. She's also the Managing Director at Founderland, the first European hub for women of color built on the pillars of community, visibility, and better access to capital for underrepresented founders. In today's episode, Deborah shares how she received funding from Google twice in a row and how to thrive in situations even when you have to start from scratch. Don't forget to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. I love reading those. And in the meantime, let's get to the conversation. Hello, uh, Deborah. You are juggling motherhood, you own your own company and a non-profit organization that you're founder of. I can imagine you say no to a lot of things and it's very special for me to steal some of your precious time and to welcome you in the studio. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Daria. And with my first question, I would like to know and if you can tell me about your first startup, which was an online vintage store you started during your student times at University of Chicago. I'm curious to hear that particular that story because of how that first experience, that small successes, those small steps that you made and how they can change the whole trajectory for a person and their career. Wow, so this is a flashback for sure. And um, my first startup, I have to say, I didn't realize that I was starting up a startup. I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't consider myself a founder. I didn't consider my co-founders founders. We were friends working on a project where we would go to thrift stores and find really beautiful clothing, accessories, uh, vintage apparel that wasn't necessarily for us, but it was the early 2000s, so the internet was interesting. And we were like, It would be cool to like make a website and put these online and see if anyone's interested in them. And I mean, I'm pretty sure if we went through like that website where you can go back and see what old websites look like, that first iteration was very embarrassing. It was just us trying something out because it was kind of what was going on around us. And it wasn't really what I thought was going to be my focus. I was At a, at a great university and I was there to make the most of it, to study hard, to get a great degree, to get a safe job afterwards. Um, so this project with my friends was a project with my friends. And I think that the, the lucky thing, honestly, was the context, the place, the setting, because we were at a university and You know, being in a university setting, I would recommend to every college student or university student, try to build something. I mean, this is a great place to fail, to try, to learn, to get all kinds of support. And that's exactly what happened with this first startup. So I was a political theory major. Um, my my co-founder was a music student. So clearly we were not business people or tech people. But we've, we found mentors in our professors who were like, well, there is a whole business school over there. Why don't you take an accounting course? You know, there's professors on entrepreneurship and business. Go to their office hours, talk to them. There's a center for entrepreneurship. See what's going on there. And, you know, being curious, I thought, well, why not? And that why not, that kind of openness to just kind of exploring what was out there, kickstarted everything, professionalized what we were building, gave us the vocabulary. We started to understand that we were building a business and we were founders and there were ways to scale it. And, you know, that was how we got started. And, you know, fast forward. Um, so this first venture uh, was sourcing and um, selling vintage apparel, initially across the US that we started to also sell internationally oh, wow. um, to Europe and also to Asia. Um, we were recognized on an amazing list early on, the Business Week Top 25 Under 25. And you know, with the support of the mentors around us, 
uh, we were able to make kind of clear decisions about where we wanted to take this first venture. And um, what we ended up doing was um, really operationalizing the business over the course of the five years that we were running it in order to be able to sell the business and exit. So in the fifth year, we were able to sell the business, not for a lot, but enough to be like, wow, we, make, we, we did a thing and someone found value in it and we were able to price that value and leave the business. And we did a whole thing. And it was so interesting for me because it just helped me to understand that the world had more, for, more in store for me. Um, I, being a young person, like many young people, thought I knew what was my, my path. My path was to you know, study political theory, go on to law school, become a lawyer, get paid well, take care of my family. That was my path. But what did I know? And you know, this first experience kind of gave me the taste that the world has just so many, so many opportunities, so many different variants of what I think success looks like um, in store for me if I'm curious enough to try. And I think that that for me was the biggest um, takeaway from this first venture. I think that a lot of people look at you know the things like selling a business or the skills around it. And of course, these things are super valuable. But for me, it was really the eye-opening part that changed everything. Yeah, incredible story. And how important that experience during the university time, as you said, in the safe environment and also access to mentors. I can't imagine, but I'm sure it would have been possible nonetheless um, if I had, say, built my first venture in my first job. I think that, you know, a lot of people start as entrepreneurs in that way. Um, but I can imagine that that is, you know, a different path of navigating to figure out who are your mentors, who are your supporters, what's okay to do on the evenings and weekends and what's not, to respect also the boundaries of the commitment to the job. And, you know, in a university setting, of course, there's a commitment to make sure that you complete your courses but everyone's vouching for you to learn and to grow. So I absolutely think of it as the greatest place to start something. And after that came so many more exciting adventures and startup that you founded. So it really kickstarted something inside of you, that yeah. entrepreneur. And yeah, Deborah, you founded and ran, first of all, fashion online store, later on media company, then innovation agency for venture-backed startups and now a plant business, they're all very different from one another. And why every time when you look back, did you find something completely different um, that you wanted to do to what you have done previously? This is unsolved mystery for me. <laughs> uh, I think it would have certainly made my life and my career path somehow easier if I was kind of incrementally building on what I already knew, for sure. And in, in some ways I have been, um, because there has been a thread for me of just a deep love of the challenges of marketing. And marketing over the last um, 15 years has changed dramatically with the in innovations from the hardware space, with innovations from you know, connectivity, with the consumer behavior changing. And I've been following that and, and loving following that. So there's been some threads, but Uh, for sure, my ventures have tackled different problems. And, you know, I think that for me and um, for many actually founders that I know, you know, we're driven also by a love of learning. And, you know, for me, it's always been chasing a problem and also chasing an opportunity to learn something. And, um, you know, I tell friends, I'm a geek. And I am a geek. I, I go down these weird rabbit holes on Wikipedia and end up learning too many random random things. I think I'd be great for Jeopardy for <laughs> potentially um, and wake up at 4 a.m. and just think about like, why is the world, this thing in the world this way? And then start my, my, my um, rabbit hole of, of research. And um, when I talked with my friends who are also founders, I, I realize I'm not alone with this one. And so I think that for me, it's been, you know, with, with the different startups and the different spaces and sectors, it's been curiosity about like, what else can I, I learn? So, you know, with my first venture, 
I've kind of learned everything and, and from scratch because, and, and kind of learned what my next questions were also. Um, because in a way, like I said, we just kind of stumbled into this first venture and in, in stumbling into it also realized the mechanics of that initial business where, you know, it was very operations intensive, um, you know, sourcing fashion and um, kind of building a database around that. And, you know, also having an eye for trends and collections and so forth. Um, and it was also something that, you know, as a non-homogenous business was also kind of tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you do find a winner, how do you replicate that win? And, you know, coming out of that first venture, I thought, I don't think I want to do another very operations intensive business again, but here I am selling plants. So that's, that's life <laughs> laughing at, at the things that we say we're not going to do. Right. But, you know, coming out of that venture, you know, I was then saying, you know, I'm kind of interested in learning what are the mechanics of running a pure digital business, you know, where there isn't hard goods or, or, or perishable goods or heavy goods or complicated goods to ship? And that was something that was not necessarily the, f- the forefront of my mind when I entered into my next venture, which was this media startup. But it was definitely there. And I think that it then kind of found its roots in this problem that I was also interested in, which was, you know, kind of what's wrong with this business model of, the, of media? You know, why at the time, and this was kind of the, I don't know what you call this period between 2000, the early 2000s, and then the current decade that we're in, or not, no, now we're in the third wave of the, the 2010s, tens. or is it just the, the 10s? 20s. Yeah, the 10s. The 10s, yeah, so. okay. Was it the 10s? Yeah, the 10s. Okay. I thought it was called like the knots or something. Well, something like this. <laughs> Anyways, so this this time period we were in, and, you know, you, you saw a lot of kind of thought pieces and... Um, Harvard Business Reviews about like the dying media business and, you know, the rise of Facebook and the rise of, of advertising dollars moving away from media. And I was reading all of this and I was working at a media company at the time. I was working at New York Magazine and I was seeing firsthand that the business was changing. Um, what used to be at the time when I was working there weekly moved to a monthly you know, the dollars, the, the revenue was shifting rapidly from being very like strong print business to being a strong digital business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was seeing this and thinking like, well, where are the opportunities here? And that was what kind of ignited the next venture that I stepped into. Mm-hmm. But di- why didn't you, for instance, stay there and see what happens to that media space? Why you were seeing an opportunity and you wanted to give it a try yourself? Didn't you have any fear of failure? I, I for sure felt a fear, of course. Um, but, you know, there's, for me, and it, I, I think it's also for coming from a, a place of privilege, for sure. I, I always felt that I could land on my feet somehow, you know, that if the idea didn't work out, I could always get a job or, you know, figure out another kind of work or, or freelance or consulting or something because I had a confidence in my, my, my hard skills, um, and I felt that they could still kind of carry me through mm-hmm. until the next startup idea. <laughs> so, so this was always there for me, this idea that, you know, I'll, I will always be able to find something. And that may be true or not true, but it's kind of what enabled me to break from the fear of failing and to also, you know, look straight into that fear of, of, of regretting as well. Um, I think that, you know, for many people, we're juggling both this idea that, well, if I do this big thing, I might fall flat on my face. But if I don't do it, I'll always wonder what would have happened. Correct. Right? So it's it's always kind of this in-between place where we, we start to make those decisions and just see kind of um, what happens after. And for me, for sure, it's been um, more so a desire to not have too many regrets than a fear of falling flat on my face. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. interesting, we're coming to the topic of regret later on, so mm. we're going to catch up on that one. But you were talking about hard skills and your ne- next venture. What was that you discovered um, about yourself in when you started Innovation Agency for venture-backed startups? I took a different turn then, of course. Um, so moving from an e-commerce business to a media business to a consulting you know, strategic agency, I have to say this was one of my most fulfilling roles that I've ever had so far. And um, with, with Bright Leap, with this agency, uh, which I ran for five years with my team, uh, we were working with international startups, 
um, that were looking to expand to the U.S. market, as well as tech accelerators that were also global looking to build roots in the kind of the U.S., but specifically in the New York kind of east east part of the U.S. And in both cases, our USP was that we were the marketing team on the ground. We knew the American consumer. We could scale a marketing message on performance channels, and we could also find the right kind of strategic partnerships with brands and media in primarily New York to partner with with our with our uh, clients. And so this is something that we were able to grow over the course of a few years. And um, I have to say, I thought I'd never leave that form of work or New York and never say never. Um, it was really at the kind of, I would say, the peak of this agency when I packed my bags and I moved to Europe roughly six years ago. Just like that. Just oh. like that. And for love. For love. <laughs> you see, when you make plans, the love comes, comes along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But before we, we move back or into the story, which brings you here to Berlin, also Germany, during those experiences of your th first three ventures, what did you understand about yourself as a founder, mm. as a leader? So I understood that I really loved going from zero to one, the nuts and bolts of taking an idea and making it into something that was operative, that had its first customers, that had a emerging business model and had a team to get it further. I, I love that stage. I love early stage. I also realized as a manager, the kind of manager that I am. Um, I love really I think that we have like a lot more terminology around this kind of of management now, but it's being less of the leader and more of the coach in in the relationship with the team. And you know, this idea of it might take longer to take the the route of coaching and um, you know, helping your team to have a sense of their own kind of leadership and ownership and decision making and Yeah, kind of their like 360 responsibility. Um, but when you do, it's really magical. It's really beautiful because to me, that's it's a team that's really humming. And, um, you know, when people don't feel like they need to pause and question and get the okay and figure out, is this, is this okay? But kind of know the boundaries around everything, the boundaries around their role, the boundaries around their department or, or contingent roles, um, then you have a team that kind of knows how to flow with each other. And that takes time to build. And that's the kind of manager that I like to be um, with, with my teams. And this was something that I discovered only through these processes, um, honestly, through the first iteration, the first startup, the second, and then the third. And if you look back, what were maybe some of the challenges And specifically, I'm curious because you showed the success again and again and this track record of showing a business value that you bring to the customers. And with every venture, you kind of stated, yes, I can. Yes, I really can deliver. What were the setbacks and have they disappeared as you went on and, and, and continue with new successes or certain challenges remained? For sure, there have been many setbacks. And, you know, I, I would even kind of narrow in on more recent ones. Um, so, you know, my, my foray into the plant business began in late 2018. And um, I actually stepped squarely into the plant care side of the plant business um, by launching a company called Horticure, which um, last year was merged with Bosque. So that's a whole journey in, in and of itself. Um, But in starting this business, uh, which was plant care as a service and was primarily offline, I think you know where this is going, there was um, a lot of vulnerability that only came up on this business model with this pandemic situation. Um, it was literally overnight, the business concept of my prior venture where with a few clicks, you could have a private gardener come to your house, come to your office, tend to your plants, 
You could also have a virtual call and and kind of achieve the same, like understand and troubleshoot what your plants need, what you might need to buy, a grow light, a humidifier, so forth. That all changed as soon as there were stay-at-home orders, as soon as we were trying to figure out what's going on, how long is this going to last, and what's safe and what's not safe. And um, so this was a situation where all of a sudden it was like, okay, well, how do I ride this out, Deb? How, do, how does this team, how does this business model ride this out? And um, those days were, I mean, I can, I can just talk about what I did, but what's, what I felt is a different thing. Those days it was quickly like March 2020, okay, what still makes sense within my business model? What still makes sense within my category? Well, if people are not so keen to have a stranger, frankly, come into their house, let's go all in on the virtual. Let's kind of couple that with a consumer product. Let's start to sell plants. Let's step into that space. Mm-hmm. And that's what Horticure did. So it, it transitioned from a, I would say, pure service business to a direct-to-consumer player um, that was selling plants, sourcing them from great growers in the Netherlands, um, and, and kind of coupling the purchase experience with a great after-sales experience with this connection with a private gardener, but this time all virtual. And, you know, of course that makes sense. You look at it and you look back and you're like, oh, of course that made sense. But living through it, I was wrought with a lot of questions. Am I doing the right thing? Am I letting go of the right people? Am I bringing on the right people? Because the business model had to change and needed new individuals on the team to support the new business model. I asked myself also, do I even like this new business that I'm in? It's very different from the one I started off with. Um, And so there was a lot of doubts and a lot of, I would say, setbacks in the sense of this wasn't the plan. The plan looked very different. And, you know, when I tell people that, what they'll say is, well, that doesn't really look like a setback because it it was really successful. The numbers showed that there was kind of an an immediate kind of connection with a customer. They, something was resonating with people and, you know, the team was great and, um, I realized that setbacks are not objective. You know, I can I can call something a setback or I can look at it as a setback, but I have to now kind of remind myself, Deborah, you might consider something a setback today and you might not consider it a setback tomorrow. For it's sure. all about the context. And so before I start labeling things now with that experience, that recent okay. experience, I first say, well, instead of me calling this a setback or even a success, let me just say it's something that happened. And what did I learn from it? And, you know, what did I give to it? And let's see what comes next. I like that approach. That's, I think it's realistic, but it's also give that hope, that kind of direction, you know, which is important rather than something static where you feel too maybe grounded or too settled with something. With that also came the merger with POSC, right? So it did lead to something even greater and even bigger. Even greater, (laughs) even greater. It was funny because, um, you know, the summer of 2020, um, after the spring, and the spring was amazing for Hordicure. It was, if we can all remember that first lockdown, that first really scary lockdown, and everything was closed, and we were all at home, and we were all shopping too much online, I think. And companies like Horticure really benefited from that first wave. And then going into the summer when the restrictions lessened, but also people's kind of confidence increased, you know, we opened up a pop-up in Berlin with Horticure and we were starting to even do uh, sales outside of Berlin, um, across Germany, in a different market entirely, selling also in London. And, you know, I was looking at the numbers and, and looking at my team and everything looked great. But privately, I was looking at my friends and saying, I think I don't like plants anymore. And they're like, no, no, no. Deborah, what do you mean by that? <laughs> what do you mean by that? You don't like plants. plants no, that sounds kind of weird. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a very astute, a very good friend of mine who, you know, and I think a lot of my story has also been about um, the, the people in our path, right, told me, Deb, you do still like plants, but something's not working for you right now. You need to kind of take a moment to figure what out what that is. And, you know, your brain is a fixer brain, so you need to fix it then. And I just needed someone to tell me it just squarely like that. 
it made me realize that, you know, I was running a very, again, operations intensive business. Here I was again, and I was unhappy for the same reasons that I was kind of unhappy with the very operations intensive nature of my very first venture. Mm -hmm. And I had to really question my whys. So, you know, I did that. I, I talked with my mentors, I talked with my friends, and I asked myself, do I still care about the problems of the industry that I'm in? The answer was yes. Do I still care about plants? The answer is still yes. That's I love good. plants. And <laughs> Happy to hear that. <laughs> you know, it was like, well, what is the problem? And I felt and I realized, you know, I was tired of being a solo founder. You know, all my other ventures, I'd had a team uh, that was very kind of uh, senior and strategic, or I actually just had co-founders. And with with Horticure, I had a great team, but I didn't have co-founders. Mm-hmm. Was it the first time that you were a solo founder? Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, kind of doing it, doing it all alone, and I'm using scare quotes around those words um, because I did have a team. But I think it's a different thing to, you know, kind of go to bed at night and be thinking about growth and also thinking about recruiting and thinking about suppliers and and it just gets all jumbled up, or at least it did for me in my brain. And it was hard to sleep. It was hard to really let go of work because everything was on my shoulders. Yeah, if not like. you, then there's no one else to back you up, basically. Exactly, exactly. So I finally told the universe, and then I told some friends, I want to feel resourced. I want I want a co-founder who really loves the operations. And I don't know what that person looks like, but this is what I need to continue in this space. I told the universe that in the summer of it always works. <laughs> 2020. And... The next thing you know, I was getting a message from my future co-founder, my current co-founder of Bosk, um, who I'd known because, uh, you know, like every industry, the my industry was is small, so we kind of all know each other. And, um, you know, he reached out and he was like, um, Alex was saying, you know, I see you've changed your business model, Deb, like, because I used to be doing just plant care and now I was also selling plants. And he was like, you know, let's let's meet up, let's have a coffee, let's let's do our walk and, and smoke. And we had this thing where we would sometimes like take a walk and smoke, which is like not such a healthy <laughs> thing to do uh, when you sell plants. But there we were, um, and you know, just talk shop, but talk about the, the industry. Um, but this time it was different, and we started just talking about vision and future and what we want to see happen in this space. And you know, that conversation led to more conversations, which led to you know, eventually where we are now, co-founders running a business together. And it was everything I wanted, but I didn't understand that I wanted at the time. Um, but it really just came from initially what was a setback, right? Right. Incredible. And what I also find remarkable that you received funding from Google two times last year, first actually for Bosk. So not only finding eventually your co-founder, then also getting funded by Google and where you were selected by Google's Black Founders Fund, among other 30 founders. Later on, a few months later, same happened for Founderland, where Google.org Impact Challenge for Women and Girls selected you among other 33 organizations. It's incredible. I mean, first of all, congratulations. It's just fantastic news. What are those initiatives, just to clarify, and how important, in your opinion, this work that Google is doing? So Google's role in the kind of startup ecosystem, let me start there, is not one that they have to take, of course, right? When you look at their peers, when you when you think of this acronym GAFA, right? So Google and Apple and Facebook and Amazon, you know, we see that Google has kind of very consistently um, over quite some time been very active and transparent about supporting founders everywhere and supporting organizations. And so, you know, with the funding, with the programs, because um, I would say it's it's not just the funding um, ever with Google. You know, when I saw the calls for both, having first been through an accelerator with Google for Startups in 2019. So um, it was not a funded accelerator, but it was really um, an amazing cohort of women founders um, in the DOC region, in the Nordics region, brought together by Google with access to investors, increased visibility for our startups, 
just amazing support for us in the very early stage. And these are women from that cohort that I'm still in touch with, that we still are able to support each other. So, you know, when I saw that call for the initially first, the Black Founders Fund from Google, I thought, oh my goodness, of course I have to apply. But not only me, I'd send it to every Black founder I knew in Europe, and even some that were not in Europe. And I said, well, just try anyways. <laughs> <laughs> just just try anyways, because, I mean, this this doesn't come up so often. You know, how many organizations with the scale of Google make such strong and bold commitments uh, to supporting underrepresented founders? So I applied. I like everyone else. Um, and, you know, when when I first got the, because um, there was always stages with, with, with any kind of funding program, the initial call, I was like, oh my goodness, let's see what happens. And then there was the next call, and then it was the next call. And the, the last, what I thought was actually just another interview um, in the process was like the call where they were announcing to me or sharing with me that um, Bosk had been selected and I'd been selected to join this cohort. So before that last call uh, for the Black Founders Fund, I was looking again through all our numbers. I had like three different pitch decks open on my computer. I was like ready to go. The data room was open. It was like any question, like <laughs> I, I was so prepared because I, I thought it was like, you know, like final questions about the business model or something. And then um, Rachel Palmer came on and I'm just like, still fangirl nervous about her, even though she's, I've met her, she's very down to earth, she's amazing. But you know, she was there and she was like, you've been selected. And I was just shocked, like just completely shocked. And maybe I shouldn't have been so shocked, but I was because I, I think that, you know, you look at these things and you assume that you're up against a lot of people who are super talented and equally deserving and, you know, doing the work and building great businesses. So to be selected felt very much very honoring, but also very humbling. And it was something very similar with the Google.org funding for, for Founderland. Actually, even with this one, I have to say um, special thank you to my co-founder, Stephanie Von Baer, because when I saw that application, because she'd brought it to us and she's like, this looks interesting. We looked at the application and I was like, that looks like it's for someone else. <laughs> I mean, we we are also an organization that are that is supporting women, and um, you know our mission makes sense with this call for organizations that support women and girls. But the application was super intimidating. Um, really? Yeah. What was what was it about it? It was well. It was first of all, it was extensive, and you know asked a lot of questions, and I felt like well, we're like a super young organization, and you know, again, you get sometimes caught up in your head about, well, the competition, the, the competition you don't even see, but just this idea that, you know, there's, of course, other organizations that have been doing their work for decades and have maybe so many more KPIs about their impact and huge teams and have gotten so much other funding, so validation. And we are the three of us building this thing with a lot of support around us, but you know, we're, we're really small and we're just starting off. And so it just felt like throwing our hat in the ring and seeing what happens. And it was a similar process where there were stages. And then the first kind of invitation to, um, to speak with the committee was again, this kind of like preparation, like all the different pitch decks <laughs> and all the different things, um, ready to go. And, you know, it was a longer process, uh, for the google.org selection and, a very similar surprise at the end for us, uh, where we thought that we were kind of having a final interview, and then it was this announcement and just just complete shock. It's amazing! Yeah, congratulations to you, Stephanie and Alina. I mean, this is the start of something big. You could maybe tell a little bit about Founderland, and also what's ahead of you for this year. What yeah. are your plans now that you have this resources, the funding, probably you're ready, uh, you know, to do great things. Right. So, you know, with, with Founderland at its core, like we're an organization that was created and exists to accelerate the business success of women of color founders in Europe and the UK. Now, why do we care about doing that? Right. Um, what's the why? What's the heart of it? And, you know, for, for me personally, um, you know, Our mission is 
bigger than the community that we have today. Um, when I think about uh, the Founderland community, I think about women who are on their way, like like me, who are growing their businesses, growing themselves, gaining visibility, and in doing so, are being seen by the next generation. And you know, I really feel like um, stepping into this role and this focus with Founderland is kind of a return back for me. I think often these days, and especially in this period of building Founderland about the younger version of myself, the first startup, and even before that first startup, that, that period where I thought I knew what life held for me. And you know that period where I didn't actually know any lawyers that looked like me, oh, and I definitely didn't know any entrepreneurs that looked like me. Um, I didn't have a tangible representation of what was possible for me. You know, I think that there are, of course, different roles for different generations. And I think that that kind of co goes to the woman I'm going to speak about later who I really admire. So, you know, I think that there's been a generation before us who are like the bricklayers. Work with me on this one. They're the bricklayers. They're building something. And, you know, may maybe they didn't see the blueprint in building in that period of building. Um, but we see actually the outcome. So our generation sees the house and we're occupying it. And my hope is that the next generation of girls who become women, they don't need to work on occupying the house, but they're actually monetizing that thing. They're running it out. They're finding the business model for the house. They're, you know, finding a way to make it a, a scalable process to build more houses. Basically allowing every generation to make a step forward exactly. for the next generation. Exactly. So, you know, with Founderland, my hope is that in supporting this generation to get capital, to get connections, to get access, to get the seats at the table, it makes it so much easier for the next generation of women, the next generation of underrepresented people to see the role model, to see this is possible because that person um, comes from my community. That person, you know, looks like me. I can read up about this person and I can see inspiration there and I can see a channel and a path for myself. Then I think, you know, we, we start to actually make a dent. We start to make a difference. Wow, this is brilliant. Where can the listeners hear more about Founderland, apply or be part of this community? Thank you, Daria. So everything is at founderland.org. And um, in building Founderland, and it's been such a gift to have the co-founders that I have, um, we've been really intentional about building a community that supports women of color, but invites everyone on the journey. So with Founderland, you know, if you are not a woman of color or if you're not even a founder, you know, you can be an ally in our, in our ecosystem and we need allies and we need investors involved. We need everyone involved. And um, you can find the call to actions on the website for uh, founders, for allies, for investors. You know, right now it's, I, I would say, very rudimentary. I, I envision us even getting more specific and more defined about the call to actions in the future. Um, but, but joining the community hopefully is very straightforward, very easy, and we welcome everyone uh, to the table. For me, I mean, your definition of success, uh, truly, with everything you shared with your um, story, your path, but is there anything, this can be a tricky question, but is there anything that you regret looking back? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because and we talked about the setbacks that you yeah. see as opportunity now. Yeah. And it's interesting that we had this conversation about the challenges, but then you reverted it and said, well, those I considered as setbacks then. Now I see this as a great opportunity, actually. Yeah. And then comes regret, which is a complete different feeling. Yeah. So it's interesting. I immediately narrow in on two concrete regrets um, in my professional life. And the first one actually happened in university. Um, and in both cases, the theme is the same. I said no out of fear. And with the first regret, and I'll just kind of detail this one a little bit, and I think it might be one that, although it's my specific story and my journey, might 
resonate with someone as well. So in university, I went to, let me start with this. I mean, I, I came from a pretty poor background. Um, I mean, my, my family immigrated uh, to the U.S. from Nigeria, uh, settled in the Midwest in, in Ohio, and um, I was the oldest of four girls. And between my parents, on average, they had five jobs, uh, sometimes more. And, um, you know, I remember growing up that, you know, it was, you know, seeing my my mom or seeing my dad in, in those small windows between the shifts. And, you know, like I was taking care of my sisters growing up early. And um, I say all this to say I didn't yet understand how to think really big. Um, so, you know, when I went to university, and it was a university where I was all of a sudden introduced to a lot of people who had very different socioeconomic kind of upbringings or backgrounds from the one that I'd been through. It was a place where, you know, people were getting internships at J.P. Morgan, and I've never, I'd never, never heard of J.P. Morgan before. Now I, of course, know all these these names now, but back then it was just like, what is that? And people would say, oh, it's an investment banking, or I'm working at a law firm this summer, and I was like, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> and you know, one summer, because I'd always at the time um, been very kind of interested in New York City, I I threw my hat in the ring for an internship with Condé Nast, and I got the internship to work at style.com for a summer, you know, to work in the same building as Vogue in the heart of the heart of New York City. And I still remember the way the um, recruiter responded when I said no. So I said no, because it was an unpaid internship, and I couldn't afford to go to New York. And I also didn't know how to think about how to make it work. I mean, maybe like in retrospect, I could have maybe asked my university to support me or or something like this. Or maybe there was a grant that I could apply for to make it work. Um, but I just saw the number and I just saw the sticker price and I got shocked. And I thought, well, there's no way I could afford this. And there's no way my family could support me to afford something like this. So I said no. And the recruiter said to me, do you know that it's harder to get into this internship than it is to get into Harvard. Oh, wow. <laughs> she had I attitude. I never forget that call. <laughs> and well. I said to her, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I wish I could take this internship, but I just can't afford it. And I regret today that I didn't take that chance. I had a lot of friends around me at university who said, Deb, I mean, not that many people listen to her, get this, in this opportunity. And, you know, you're Deborah, like, just go to New York. I'm sure you can figure it out. You can waitress, you could do something else. Like, you can figure out some way to make it work. And I was just really, really scared and really scared of failing and really scared of it being something that I couldn't kind of, like, handle. Right. Um, yeah. That was my first regret, um, my first professional regret, um, because I always wonder what would that summer have been like mm -hmm. if I had just tried Second regret, because I have two concrete ones. Go for it. I'm all ears. <laughs> so, so at this point, I, I was living in New York. And um, I had come in the summer of 2010 um, after um, uh, selling my first venture. And I didn't yet have my next startup idea or a job. Um, so I was just kind of figuring out New York, getting settled in. Uh, into the into the Lower East Basically Side. Basically enjoying life. <laughs> enjoying life. Thank you. That's the word. And, you know, trying to figure out what was the next step. And I took on um, a summer gig at a consultancy that was doing a lot of research and market research about kind of digital innovation. So that was interesting. And, and this summer, you know, it was it was something that was temporary. I knew there was a, one specific report that I was focused on. And it was a great actual, like looking back, it was a, an excellent way to kind of ease myself into a new city and a new chapter. And I was working with people who were, who are super smart and also kind of figuring themselves out at the same time. And one of those people came to me one day, we were having lunch and he said, could you check out this website that um, 
uh, my sister and her boyfriend they're working on. And I, I logged in and I looked at this thing that his sister had thought was cute to call Pinterest. And no way. I wish I'd taken like a screenshot and like saved it and like printed it out and framed it or something because this was a super, super early iteration of Pinterest. It was the Pinterest. <laughs> and, you know, I looked at it and I thought, this looks like Google search for images, but it's a different platform. And, you know, Pinterest back then, it actually had like, uh, like in this room, it had like a background that looked like a pin board. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah. And um, I saw it and I just, you know, I'm not really, I don't really get it. I'm not really interested. I mean, he was asking if I would be interested to brainstorm with them, you know, like, you know, test some things out, like just get, just figure things out together. I was not. I just, I was really closed to that opportunity. Mm -hmm. I, I thought, again, I knew what was in front of me. I was in New York. I was going to, I just sold my fashion business. I was maybe going to work in fashion, which I ended up doing. Um, but I said no to something without even really kind of trying. And that was another, as you can imagine. <laughs> Years later, you're like, well... Big regret. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That one I can I can imagine. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's a reason for everything that happens in our life. Absolutely. Because right now, probably you're building your own Pinterest. So time for my last question. Um, and the one I'm very excited to hear you answer, Deborah. Who would you mention as a woman who for you is an author of her own achievements? Mm. So when, when you had shared this question with me initially, um, the first impulse, the first person that came to my mind is the person I want to talk about today. And that is Shirley Chisholm. Now, I personally was only introduced to who this woman was in a race theory course in university. And when I learned about her being the first woman and first black person to run for president of the United States of America, I thought, why hadn't I heard of her before? I mean, growing up in America, you spend a lot of time, as you, as you probably know from, from living in the States before, reading about American history every single year. And, you know, you learn about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and skip over the uncomfortable parts of American history, but I had never heard of Shirley Chisholm before. And, you know, this, this was a person, this is a woman who, she stood apart. She was, you know, a woman that was not necessarily embraced by the Democratic Party, not necessarily embraced by kind of the black movement of the time. She was odd. She had an accent. She was not necessarily like a Harvard or Ivy League educated individual, like super, super accomplished in this, in this or that way that um, kind of made a woman who looked like her palatable regardless. She stepped up and said, I'm going to go for one of the hardest jobs to get in the world, even me being the woman that I am. And, you know, I think that unfortunately, history doesn't necessarily remember her in the way that you do so vividly with other people who were living at the time that she was or and building and kind of breaking through barriers at the time that she was either. That said, you know, in many ways, she absolutely paved the way, even silently, for the people that we have in our, in our clear conscious today, right? Uh, people like Barack Obama, um, you know, before him, there was her. First saying that it might be possible. Before Hillary Clinton, there was her who was saying, look at me. And, you know, I think that there are so many women like Shirley Chisholm who are bricklayers. Like what I was saying before, building the foundation for the next, uh, the next generation to come and do better and build better and build more secure. And, you know, I think that there are these kinds of women that I really admire because I think that, you know, the reality is we're not all going to be so loud and take up so much space. But every day when we consciously think about 
making the world better for ourselves, for our families, for our loved ones, then we can all be a little bit of Shirley Chisholm, right? In our way. Um, and so it's women like that that I feel like are actually the most approachable as well. Even though I have no interest at all in running for any presidency, I see myself in, in someone like her, someone who says, I'm going to try anyways, and I'm going to see what happens. And you don't have to like me. I'm going to do it because I care about this. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of women have that in themselves. And I, and I feel that in myself, too. And so that's a woman that I really admire. Wow. Thank you, Deborah, for sharing her name. And I think even more what you did is you planted a seed. I think you, you really gave so much food for thought that I actually need the, the time even after this episode to reflect on a lot of things. And thank you. I mean, also for connecting things that happened in your life being so open to sharing that and explaining how that path have developed and how you are using your learnings now paving the way for other founders and supporting them. It's an honor to have you today in the studio. Thank you for coming. And I hope we see each other again and continue this conversation, which can beautifully develop into something else. And But again, also that we are That's something, another thought that comes to my mind, that we are also those bricklayers in a way, and we should keep this in mind, not to be passive, but to take that actionable approach to life, despite whether it's recognized or not, but we know deep inside that we are making impact, we're making the step forward. Thank you for this conversation, Deborah. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for inviting me to also reflect today. So I really appreciate that gift. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.